Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Dressed? The History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. So Cass, I know that no one is going to fight me on what I'm about to say next. (laughs) 2020 was an incredibly challenging year for most of us, if not all of us. And, you know, it's nearly the end of 2021. We're, you know, a whole year later, and we're still not out of the proverbial woods yet. You know, there's been so much loss and so much upheaval in all of our lives. And our lives have really been unequivocally impacted and changed over the course of the last two years. And it's really this mantra of change that we're going to focus on today. Whether you love it, need it, fear it, hate it, change is absolutely part of all of our lives. Yes, it is. And maybe we should all focus on embracing it, dress listeners, because change does not have to be bad. Change can be great. It can be much needed. And especially when it comes to the growth and change in the fashion industry, you have all heard us talk about on this show time and time again. So many times. (laughs) So many times (laughs) about the current state of the global fashion system, how it must change. There's a whole host of reasons for that. And the fashion industry intersects with critical conversations on climate change, of course, but also human rights, social and economic justice, in ways that really often go unseen, unchecked, and unregulated. And that is what we are here to talk about this week in this two-part episode. Yes, and we are so pleased to welcome Aja Barber to the show today. Aja is a sustainability activist, writer, blogger, influencer extraordinaire, and she just published her first book, which is entitled Consumed, The Need for Collective Change, Colonialism, Climate Change, and Consumerism. And her book addresses not only the systemic problems embedded in the current fashion system, but also, and perhaps more importantly, what we as individuals and consumers can do to come together to course correct those problems. Yes, and April and I join us because we can do this together, dress listeners. Aja, a very, very warm welcome to Dressed. Aja, I adored your book. It is jam-packed with information and, and some very kind of like heavy, serious stuff. But at the same time, your writing style is so energetic and like friendly and welcoming. Like you present all this information in a way that is digestible and it's kind of a fun book despite the fact that yeah. like there's serious stuff in here. So thank you for writing it. Thank you. It's heavy stuff, but I think what I've found from social media is that like 
one of the things that we do in these conversations is we just give people the heavy facts. Like I've done talks before with people that have been like, climate change is coming and it's going to be horrible. And these are all the scary things. When you do that, all you do is scare people into like hiding on their sofa under a blanket and then you don't get any action. And I also think sometimes on social media and it could be like, there could be like some heavy racism at play in this conversation. But I do find sometimes people will like read my words and take it as I'm like angry or whatever when I'm just being frank. And so I've definitely made my platform more approachable because I I do think people sort of do sometimes enter these conversations with their guard up, like ready to be like super like fragile and really defensive. And so I've sort of gotten the writing style to the point where I hope that it can feel like a friend basically pulling you in and being like, yo, girl, fix your face. You know, (laughs) your your makeup's not great right now. That's really all I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to say you personally are responsible for all these problems because we know that's not true. But collectively, I think it's time for us all to sort of step back and look at the bigger picture. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I think that this book is a really, it pulls out all those details of the critical conversations that we all need to be having, even with our friends over dinner, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we've all had the friend who's like way more financially privileged than we are that like does like weekly hauls at Forever 21. And you're kind of a bit like, why is this happening? (laughs) And you're not the person who is like having to pick between Forever 21 trousers for work or paying a light bill. Like that that will never be you. You don't even have a mortgage. So why are you doing this? And then it's like, oh, well, you know, that's what I can afford. It's like, "Mm." yeah. And I think we're going to like delve into that argument in a minute because it's time for us to have the conversation. Yes. Okay. But before we do that, I just want to give our listeners a little bit of your background. You are American, but you now live in London. So can you tell us a little bit about like your early years growing up in the U.S. and then also how you came to be living in London for the very first time? Yeah. So I'm rereading Naomi Klein's new logo. And what it points out to me is that like every decision in my life has probably been marketed to me. (laughs) So I would argue that Richard Curtis is probably strongly to blame for the reason I live in London. All of his movies in the 90s were just like, there was a very big campaign where like London was the cool place to be. But I'm from Virginia originally. I grew up in Ruston, which is a pretty like affluent area. But I actually grew up not very affluent on the scale of affluence. Like that's the thing. As far as my parents go, when you look at, you know, other Black people, even within like our family, my parents did really well for themselves. But when you're in like an area like Northern Virginia, where you're literally like having people that get brand new SUVs for like their 16th birthday and live in like McMansions and go to like private schools that cost more than like my university tuition, that sort of skews your idea of what like your wealth and position in life is. And so I grew up definitely thinking that we were like poor, which is ridiculous. Um, My parents have always tried to give us everything. And like, we were 
definitely like lower middle class. I would argue working class from the majority of my life with like edging towards firm middle class. But the one thing my dad did do, which I think has always been an amazing privilege, is that he put any money he could into traveling. So from a very young age, I got to visit France. I got to visit London. I got to visit the Netherlands. And I always sort of had an idea that there was more to life than America and you could, maybe I could live in one of these places growing up. And so that is still a gift that my dad has given me that I'm incredibly grateful for. I grew up going to school, very affluent people, and I never had the right clothing. And that was my first foray into sort of fashion was feeling like I didn't fit in over there and they didn't invite me to birthday parties because I didn't have like the matching limited two sweatshirt that they all had. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like that it was always something. And so my first interest in fashion came from a real need to fit in through material items with people who were never going to be nice to me. And from that original, like, I have to have these items. I have to have this came an actual interest in fashion. It was the early nineties in the late nineties. London was really becoming like known as being a fashion capital. And you had all of these amazing designers and people that were really in all the magazines were were coming from the UK, Isabella Blow, Kate Moss, Alexander McQueen. There was just so much cool stuff going on over here. And I began to sort of read fashion magazines from the UK and Barnes and Noble. And I just knew that this is where I needed to be like that. It just, I, I felt this pull. So my parents said, you can't go to university over there. It's really expensive. As a matter of fact, you can't go to a private school. So I said, okay, but can I do like a year abroad? And they were like, that's the, we'll, we'll allow that. And uh, my school had a work abroad program and they were like, yeah, we'll find you a job. And I thought, no, I'm not going to let you ruin this for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you're going to give me school credit to move to London and like do fun stuff. There's no way I'm going to be working in a government office. Like, so I found a streetwear label who I ended up coming to do a work placement with. And to this day, Rupert and Abby are still two of my closest friends. And the UK version of the book has illustrations, which they've personally done. And so that was how I first got to the UK the first time. I met my partner completely separate of that, but we, he fits in well with the game. Yeah. And I loved your description of your work abroad experience. It, it was very positive. Yeah, it was. And that was when I got my first taste of like what sustainability should actually look like. You know what I mean? Even though sustainability wasn't even a thing, like this was the early 2000s, fast fashion was amping up. Mm-hmm. And small brands were doing things in a thoughtful way that we should be doing things in where fast fashion was becoming king. And we were all sort of like, mm, you know, it, it looks cool, I guess, whatever. But on this side, we were producing clothing that cost five times more the price of what something in Topshop or H&M would cost. And uh, I began to understand the reasons why and what went into all of that and and why, you know, if you can't afford to pay more money for your clothing, you absolutely should. Yeah, for sure. And just to kind of like flip the script here for a second, you did an internship right after this in New York. How did those experiences compare? <laughs> Complete opposite. It was um, <laughs> a magazine who remains unnamed, but it was a completely opposite experience. And 
I think that's a mixture of the toxic side of the industry, bad management, and all of the oppressions that we talk about. Like I was very fortunate to have this experience in London that was so positive because what came next was so negative that I began to understand why, you know, people really hate on the industry. Like all the bad things that you read about the industry were completely presented to me in that, that New York experience from like the privilege to the racism, to the hierarchy. And what I really began to understand in this sort of New York experience, I came in as an intern, left as a freelancer, was that the fashion industry and its usage of labor and internships creates only a certain class system of people who can participate in the fashion industry. And when you do that, you actually are implicitly changing our culture because you are not representing all voices. You are only allowing certain voices to actually be within the room while saying that like fashion is for everyone and everyone's welcome. Well, not true if everyone can't do an internship for free and everyone. And, And what I saw as well was that getting hired in those positions was really the luck of the draw. You had to be in the right place at the specific right time. But because of all the barriers of entry within our society, even being in that right place, right, that was like a bit of a feat. So, you know, I felt really, I guess, foolish after I had gone to New York. Like, how could I not know that it's like this? But then I realized that like, my experience was actually just a small part of the microcosm of the entire industry. And when I looked at production and and clothing manufacturing, I began to see that the same issues just existed, repeated over and over and over again. And then when I looked at even something like blogging, which I got into pretty early, but my blog never took off. And it wasn't because it wasn't good. Like it wasn't as good as some of the big names that like we know and I deeply respect. But what I did see was blogging started as a very like homegrown, I wouldn't want to say grassroots because that sounds a bit (laughs) exaggerated, but it was a real homegrown movement of people that really like fashion, just coming together to talk about really liking fashion. And then the rich kids showed up and it was just like, oh, here we go. Here we go. All of a sudden the rich kids show up. That person has so many designer items of clothing that I will never, ever own, no matter how wealthy I am. Like that is just the most eccentric wealth on display. And look, now the brands are getting involved. And so they're going to reward this person who's already rich by sending them more handbags. And now they're doing ads. And it just, it just became so quickly the exact same thing that I'm seeing played out again and again. Yeah, you know, for sure. Like you talk about in the book, how like in theory, the blogosphere is democratic, but in reality, that's not really how it played out. I mean, even the barrier for entry, it's there. And we pretend like these things don't exist in our society and it's bullshit. Like, you know, we talk about like the, the Instagram boyfriend, okay? That's real. I got a partner who works with me and he's like, has a really nice camera. He's a really good photographer. My platform took off, like not for a lack of trying when I was in the States, but when I moved to the UK. And there were a few things going on, okay? Locational privilege. Everybody's like, ooh, London's the place to be, right? Like how many people who have big platforms in fashion don't live in one of 
the big fashion capitals. How many, you know, it's not that open. Are, you know, just the barrier for entry with hosting a website, making it look professional, graphic design, all of that stuff that, that requires tools and money and time. And if you don't have that, then like you're up against people that do have those tools and money and time. And people can say that like anyone can be an influencer, but there's always a barrier for entry that we don't want to discuss. And I'm here to discuss it so that the person who's like me, a single person who only has X amount of time, doesn't beat themselves up. I think that I'm, I I like to think I'm good at what I do, but I also am part of a team, right? And now I have an even bigger team because of the book, you know? So like I'm one person, but like those phrases that are like, you have X amount of hours in the day is that person over there that those phrases are like meant to make you feel bad. There's so many barrier for entries and there's so many things that get easier if you have just a little bit of help and a bit of a leg up. And I'm here to discuss that stuff openly because a lot of times we pretend like it doesn't exist. Yeah. And that's what we're going to do because the subtitle of your book is The Need for Collective Change, Colonialism, Climate Change, and Consumerism. and I'm going to just venture a guess that some of our listeners might be wondering how colonialism relates directly to the fashion industry. But before we get to that, how would you like to, for our discussion today, define colonialism? Let's just go with the really basic, it's going to someone else's country, extracting goods and labor for the better of of another country. That's how I would look at it. The consumer marketplace that we exist in today is founded on colonialism. I mean, it's the notion that if you look around the room or you look at clothing on your body, there's a very good chance that marginalized people and more often than not, black and brown people have made those items. Okay. Our world, the way it exists, the global North and very privileged countries, we ain't pulling our weight in those markets. No, we do not produce goods at the rate that we used to. We do not manufacture so much in America anymore. That's pretty much gone. And a lot of this has been to our detriment. Like it hasn't been great for us either to not have these job markets around. But we buy a lot of stuff and it's all coming from somewhere, but it's not coming from us. So the fashion industry, the clothing that we are mostly buying and wearing is being created in the global south and countries in the global south the resources are being brought in from those countries so whether we're talking cotton or linen or any sort of fabric silk that sort of stuff these are countries that are extremely resource rich but they're not economically rich and we need to start being like why is that if we all need this stuff and then the labor the labor is also happening there So you have products that are being assembled in countries that are resource and labor rich in the global South. It's being shipped to countries in the global North that are not as resource rich in certain ways. We are consuming these products really rapidly. And then when we're done, and if we're talking particularly about the fashion industry and the speed at which things move, we're dumping it on a charity because that's always been our thing. Like you donate it because then somebody in a poor country might want it or someone in a poor area, except The fashion industry has dramatically amped up its production in the last 20 to 30 years so that the amount of clothing that's being produced every year goes to the tune of 100 billion garments. It's insane. Yeah. 
our, our global population for reference is 7.9 billion people, which means the fashion industry is creating almost 13 times the human population in clothing per year, per year, per year. But if we break it down even more, 50% of the planet lives on $5.50 a day. So very often that part of the planet is not the people buying the consumer goods. So let's just have the human population there. So we are buying all this clothing because everything's become super amped up. We're donating it to a charity. Charities receive so much that they're only selling between 10 to 20% of their donations. And the other 80% is either going to get landfilled, which if we're talking about waste colonialism, ask where the landfills are located, particularly in America, Mm -hmm. because you're never going to find a landfill close to a wealthy white neighborhood, just like you won't find a pipeline there. The landfills you're going to find are going to be located in either poorer areas or black areas. And that's been proven through work of environmentalists like Dr. Robert Buller. So if it ends up in a landfill, that's the problem there. But the majority of it is going to go right back to the global South. And it's going to go to a country like Kenya, Rwanda, Ghana, Uganda even. And there it causes an ecological crisis because the amount of clothing that is coming in is simply not needed. It's not good quality. It's hard to resell. 25% of what arrives in Accra, Ghana, Cantamonto market is free t-shirts, right. free t-shirts. And tote bags, which in your book, you know, I'm like, oh, wow. I think this is going to really like open some people's eyes. So I actually wrote, I think tote bags are going to be the next thing. And sure enough, there's been articles coming out about the free tote bags and what's happening with them. It was just a prediction. And so I didn't, I didn't confirm it because I didn't have the hard numbers to back it. But I was like, I think free tea tote bags are going to start to become a problem soon. And I just know that from looking at my own collection of free tote bags. Totally guilty. <laughs> but I use them, actually. They're kind of like my second bag all the time. I can't use all of them, though. Like, no. I get so many, I cannot use them all. So your clothing might end up in Cantamonto Market, which is what I focused on in my book. Cantamonto Market is located in Accra, Ghana, and it is arguably the largest secondhand retailer in the world. It's not big in like geographic location. It's actually pretty, pretty small, but the amount of upcycling that happens there, it's amazing. And it's also unfair because that part of the world shouldn't have to deal with our bad decision-making, you know? And so 15 million items arrive in Cantamoto market weekly And they're only able to sell at most 40% of that. And so the other 60% of clothing that arrives becomes environmental pollution. It has filled up the municipal dump years ahead of schedule. The government of Ghana has to deal with it, which honestly, Americans would hate if they had to deal with someone else's waste who's taxpayer money. It ends up polluting the beaches. It ends up polluting neighborhoods. The local dump there caught on fire and it, it's been burning pretty steadily. It's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. But our idea towards waste has always been out of sight, out of mind, or NIMBY, not in my backyard, which is essentially waste colonialism because nothing on this planet actually goes away that quickly that isn't fruit, vegetable, food, us, that sort of stuff. And so it does create colonialism for for other people, but because we don't see it, we don't recognize what a true disaster of a problem it is. Yeah, 
For sure. And also like dumping our fashion trash, quote unquote, fashion trash abroad has a lot of other implications besides what you just mentioned, which is horrifying, but it also messes with the dress and textile traditions of these places. Yes, it does. The local the local market and, and people that create there cannot compete with like a three cent t-shirt, which means that if you are from one of the countries that is getting an onslaught of these donations and you're a creative person, how, how do you make a, a business that stays afloat right. against this market of ultra cheap clothing? Mm-hmm. It's very unfair. Yeah. I mean, and, and in your book, you use this phrase that I think is very like poignant in this context of race-based hierarchies in terms of like Western versus non-Western, quote unquote, dress. Yeah. And that's, that's also tied into the root of like these markets that end up in global South Black countries is, you know, in Ghana, there was this idea that traditional dress soon became kind of a thing that that wasn't as celebrated because dressing closer to Western global North style of dress was professionalism, was, you know, putting you in a different hierarchy of people and that sort of thing. And then if we want to get to like the microcosm of that sort of colonialism, certainly shows up in in America, hair. Hair is extremely political. Um, I think it was two years ago, the state of New York just made a law where you couldn't discriminate based yep. upon like hair. And that sort of stuff always comes down to black styles and natural hair. I mean, I don't relax my hair now, but my hair was completely straightened for the majority of my life from like age nine until about 30. It was a horrible process that I hate it and I will never go back to again. But there is an element of um, pressure there to assimilate. And that comes from colonialism. Yeah, for sure. No one really wants to put lie on their head. It's not fun. No. (laughs) (laughs) And if any of our listeners want to like learn a little bit more about that, you can go back to our episode, which is entitled Textures, because we have actually talked about this a bit on the show. So, yeah. Going back to fast fashion, this is clearly a major contributor to a lot of different types of global inequalities. And, you know, I am going to accept the unhappy messages that we're going to get after we air this episode, because every single time we talk on the show about the negative impacts of fast fashion, Mm -hmm. we get messages from people saying they buy it because they can't afford anything else. And you actually address this in your book. I do address this. Dead on. So what do you have to say about buying fast fashion? This has been my, like, this has been the crux of my whole platform because I've struggled with these conversations myself. But I would say it's a very small percentage of people buying fast fashion who truly cannot afford to do better. It's a very small percentage. And it's time for those of us who are not within that percentage to start doing better. Because I said that, and I was someone who grew up with not a lot of disposable income, none of the privileges of my peers. So I was the perfect fast fashion consumer. Like I was prime for the taking because it made me feel, you know, accepted and whatever. But there became a point where I had to realize, but do I have to buy this way? And 
what people need to understand is the average fast fashion consumer buys 68 items of clothing a year. This is insane. This is like more than one a week. People will go, oh, that's not me. And I'm like, I would invite you to track your purchases and be honest about it because it's so easy to passively buy in our society. It's so easy. You go to Target for one thing and you leave with a bunch of stuff. Yeah, well, Target is very addictive. (laughs) Yeah, it is. You have a bad day at work and you're passing a shop on the way home. So you pick up a summer dress, even though you still have like 20 really, really nice summer dresses. I know I've been that person. I was buying 68 items a year. If you are the person who is literally buying like, you know, 10 to 20 garments a year and they happen to be fast fashion, then I would say that you're not the problem. But it takes a lot of us buying into a system with such consistency that it makes a bunch of billionaires in order for the system to run. So it's a lot of money coming from all classes. And one of the things I also break down in my book is the wealth in America, because we do this thing where like no one wants to be poor because being poor sucks and it's systemic, except for when it comes time to participate in a system like fast fashion. That's the only time I've heard people say stuff like I'm poor. And I've heard it from people that are so clearly not poor that it actually like makes me want to grab them and shake them. But I broke down the wealth in America and I did this through a group called Resource Generation, which is really helpful. I should send them a little donation because they were definitely helpful in my research. And I looked at the class markers in America and you've got a system of fast fashion where at the top of this food chain, it's all billionaires. And it takes a lot of money to create a billionaire. However, when we look at the wealth breakdown of America, Poor and working class people in America account for 3% of America's wealth. 3%. That is what poverty and working class looks like. Middle class people, however, upper class managerial wealth, that's where the wealth is. That 3% of wealth did not make this person a billionaire, didn't make that person a billionaire. That 3% means that you're trapped in these systems but you're probably not the person who's buying 68 items of clothing a year. That's really the reality. And it's time for us to be honest about that. If you aren't that person and you know that, you know, this is all I can afford, but I really don't buy that much clothing anyways, then you're not the problem, boo, you survive, do your thing. But I think it's time for those of us who know that we're the problem to start being really honest about that and maybe sitting out some of this ridiculous buying we've been doing for the last 20 years. Yeah. And, and you know, you say 68 is the average. Average. Which means that there are a lot of those people in that kind of like middle uh, who are doing like 128 garments a year. Let's look at it this way, okay? A person that can spend $1,000 at Shein can definitely buy some more responsibly sourced garments and probably about half of that. At Shein, you're going to get a, a big, box of clothing. Sometimes I see these hauls because I watch them and it looks like, you know, when you get a new washing machine, the box that that comes in and it's like, this is excessive people. This is not what you need to get by. This is not survival. This is extreme excess and we need to recognize it for what it is. It's not good. It's not cute. And it's hurting the planet. It's hurting the people. I would argue that it's not even really that good for us. Like, I don't think this 
mindset that you need to have a new wardrobe every single season is good for us. That's what's been pushed on us, but it doesn't mean that it's good or it's helping or anything. And, and then I sort of zoom out and I look at our generation. I think part of the reason why systems like fast fashion have gotten us so well is because there's so much social inequality going around in general. The wealth gap between the richest people in the world and people that are middle class has never been bigger. And so a person who you know might be middle class cannot afford to get on the property ladder where they live. And so we have all these like things that we're told that you should be able to do when you become an adult and you work a full-time job. And we're not able to do them because of this crappy economy and bad laws and allowing the uber rich to get extremely wealthy. And so we buy fast fashion instead. You can't buy a house. You know, you're not meeting a life partner. So you're not even sure if you're going to get to have a family. The planet's on fire. We adopt a real like YOLO attitude because we don't feel empowered about other areas of our life. And so we turn towards like passive buying. And I know I was that person too. So I'm not saying like you're a bad person. Most people I know own fast fashion. Most people. I I still wear mine if it fits, you know, but it's time for some of us to sort of get off the wheel, put a cork in it, you know, (laughs) start making some different life decisions. That's really all to it. It's time to be honest about it. It's time to discuss it with our friends. It's time to change some of our habits, like holiday gifting, for instance. We buy so much crap at the holiday season. We buy people things they don't want. I would rather just give someone cash than be like, here's some plastic crap that you're going to have to have in your house because I felt like I needed to buy you this. I'd rather just be like, here's some money. Here's a nice dinner. Yeah. You know, things, experiences. I'll take you to a movie. So much of our culture is sort of like, surrounding participation and consumption, how we hang out with our friends, that friend that always you go to the mall together and then you buy things you don't need together. And that's like hanging out, maybe change those hangouts, maybe change the ways in which you participate in the system passively, because I changed that. And I noticed a huge difference in everything when I did. So I actually think like thinking about these systems are really good for us. If we can just like not be defensive about it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I it, just one tiny little thing that I've done in my life is like when I travel abroad and I do like a really cool trip, instead of bringing back a whole bunch of stuff, I tr- I go to cooking school for like at least a day or maybe even a couple days or depending where I am even longer. And it's more about like bringing back that experience, bringing back that knowledge and like putting it into my life. That is it's been incredibly rich for me, at least. Like I would so much rather do that than bring back a whole bunch of things. <laughs> yeah. I read one time that Helen Mirren, the actress, travels without luggage. And when she reaches her destination, she goes to a charity shop, buys the clothing that she needs, wears it while she's at the destination and then redonates it. And I'm like, I want to be like that. That's really cool, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. As you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more... 
that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation, so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can, by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this (laughs) hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Okay, so I'm going to say something really heavy right now, which is the fact that I say this to my friends a lot. They don't like it when I say this, but if you are consuming fast fashion, the very sad matter of the fact is that you might be contributing to human rights abuses. So I'm hoping that we can talk a little bit about systemic poverty in terms of fashion, the fashion industry currently, and also how that connects to climate change. Because this is a big leap, but they are so like inextricably linked. They are so connected. So when we talk about inequality, 80% of garment workers are women. Let's lead with that. We live in a world where in the developed world, women still make, what is it? 84 cents to a dollar of a man. You'll have to check my math because I always get that one wrong. But we live in a world where inequality exists, okay? A woman who's very good at doing a job is going to make less money than her male counterpart. Even if she is better at it than he is, that's the world we live in. When you have a fashion industry where we already don't value the labor that's going into the clothing. And I think fast fashion has allowed us to do that. We've gotten so far away from how our clothing is made. We don't even understand it. So we tend to sort of dehumanize the labor that goes in behind it. So you've already got that going on. And then you've got an industry full of women where we already know that women are exploited in most labor industries. So that's sort of like a compounding intersection right there. Additionally, we know that women and girls and, you know, any person of any gender that doesn't identify as a man is going to be hit harder by climate emergency. In countries that have been traditionally pillaged and and colonized, if a country is already underdeveloped, 
a lot of the burden of things like collecting firewood and stuff like that, that falls on women and climate emergency really impacts your survival and how you do those things, how you care for your family, that sort of thing. So we have to look at all these issues through like a lens of intersectionality and look at like the compounding issues of it. But additionally, all of the factory stuff that's made in the global north is, you know, aiding in the climate crisis, okay? We have rivers that are undrinkable because of the factory runoff. One such river is the Chitoram, which I talk about in the book. The government has pledged to clean up the river by a certain date, but like, wait, these are billion dollar companies that are producing in all of these factories. Once again, just like in Ghana, it's falling on the government to clean up the mess while a rich man is running away laughing. You know, and in the book, I don't have the quote in front of me, but one of the professors of the local university in Indonesia talks about if we make these regulations and the businesses won't come, but if the businesses come, then we sacrifice the people. Right. Why should anyone have to make that choice? Why is that a choice that's being made? So, you know, when you look at pollution, when you look at fossil fuels, that's another element of it. Well, and a lot of people don't realize that a lot of fast fashion is actually made out of fossil fuels. It's plastic. It's people made out of oil. Realize that. And I recently started to go into stores that I would frequent and just go through the store and sort of take a tally of like how many fab, how many garments I find that aren't coming from fossil fuels. And it's usually like our organic cotton line and everything else is blended. Everything. We're talking easily 95% of the store. That is keeping the fossil fuel industry afloat. Like whether or not you want to recognize that millions of barrels of oil every year go to creating these fabrics. And so if you don't like the fossil fuel industry, then you should really be mad that there's been a very deliberate push to put these fibers into all of the garments that we buy, into all the fabrics that make the garments that we buy. So from fossil fuel perspective, from human rights abuses, most high street brands cannot guarantee that the person who made their clothing was paid a fair and living wage. Mm -hmm. They can't, they'll say they're working towards it, but like you've had a business for how long? I'm sorry, but if you can't pay people fairly, I don't think you deserve to have a business and certainly not one that turns over $40 million of profit a year. Right. I just don't think it should be allowed, but it is. So we've got human rights abuses. We have Garment workers, you know, regularly hearing about garment workers complaining that within a factory they were they were beaten or sexually assaulted. If you become a little tall poppy and you start talking about organizing labor union, garment workers have been killed before for this stuff. It's a deeply problematic system. And this idea, I think what people also don't understand is that most of the big brands have no connection to their factories. They, they outsource all of the labor overseas. They claim that they're doing it to be altruistic, but the business model isn't exactly lifting anyone out of poverty. Additionally, when a factory like Rana Plaza collapses and kills 1,134 innocent people, brands can say that they had no idea. That's what the system allows for. It allows for loopholes. It allows for zero legality. What we saw during the pandemic with the pay up campaign, 
Brands order their clothing months in advance, except a global pandemic comes and brings everything to a screeching halt. These factories have already produced the clothing for you and you're not going to pay them for it because yeah. you can. That's what this system allows for. It allows for zero responsibility, zero legality, human rights abuses. Like this is what we're buying into. And it's time for us to begin to understand that by passively going nothing to do with me and continuing to buy 68 items of clothing a year, that's what you're buying into as well. Yeah, you're paying for that. I'm not saying it to the person who bought 10 items of clothing a year. I am (laughs) saying the person like me that was living in their parents' basement, but still trying to like participate in this system, I bought into that. Mm-hmm. And I was mad about it. That was the change for me. I think one year I, I was, I had moved back in with my parents so many times in my twenties and thirties. And uh, one year I had kept all of my receipts from one such store and I had not made a lot of money that year. Like I had made technically what is considered like Virginia poverty wages, but I was never poor. That's another element. Like I, I will have people go, oh, well, you know, I don't make much money. Okay. But I have a parent's basement that I can retreat into. I have people that will feed me. So even though on paper, I could technically say, yes, I was poor during that time period. Was I? Not really. And I think a lot of people do do that sometimes, but still time to be real about that. So I was living in my parents' basement, making like zero to no money because of an unstable job market that I have dealt with throughout my entire life. And I looked and a portion of my yearly income I had given to one store in particular. And that store is owned by a person who has five billionaires in their family. And that was the moment where I was just like, I got to stop with this crap. I got to stop. I can't do this anymore. I know all of these things in the back of my head. I know that, you know, I have a sewing machine. I can create a limited amount of items, usually pretty poorly. It always looks pretty ticky tacky, but I can do it. I know what sort of labor goes into creating a very simple garment. How did they get that price to that? If I know that I did not make something that was half as good as that dress, how on earth did they get it to just the price of what the fabric costs in the fabric store? Yeah. So that's the thing. And I had to ignore a lot of these things in order to continue to participate in the system. And I'm hoping to get us all to a point where we can no longer ignore it. Ignore it, we shall not, because this is just part one of our two-part episode with Aja. In Thursday's episode, Dress Listeners, April, you and Aja speak about the specific things that our listeners can implement in their own buying habits to create positive, impactful change for not only our planet, but also for the garment workers who work to create the clothes we wear. What we do or do not choose to buy actually has a direct link to the quality of life experienced by millions of our fellow humans who do this work. Yes, it absolutely does. And just on a like very personal note, many years ago, I visited Vietnam, which is one of my all-time favorite countries to visit. The food is amazing. They're also very well-known in certain cities for tailoring operations where you can have custom made-to-measure clothing made. And to get this done for the tourist trade, a lot of these tailoring operations operate 24 hours a day. And some of the ones that I visited actually had workers sleeping directly on the hard floor, just like simply covered in a blanket because they would lose time by going home to sleep and then coming back to work. And it was 
kind of devastating. And I just want to say this is so, so wrong. And the pace of fashion has broken if an employer anywhere in the world would even consider that as an option. But we're going to address that a little bit more in detail on Thursday. Yeah, and I'm glad you said anywhere in the world because these conditions exist all over the world, including in the United States of America. Yep. We're looking at you, LA. Yeah. (laughs) All is not doom and gloom, dress listeners, but we must talk openly about these things before we can really understand why change is so necessary. Well, we hope you consider how changing your buying habits is a step in the right direction next time you get dressed. If you'd like to reach out to us with episode suggestions or questions, you can always find us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, which is where we post images for each week's episodes. Thank you as always to our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who helps produce the show each and every week. More with Aja coming your way on Thursday. Dressed, the history of fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.